Today's guest says that her journey towards a sense of self began the moment her mother died. We'll find out more about that in just a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. And I am pleased to introduce to you Cheryl Rice, who is the founder of Your Voice, Your Vision, and author of Where Have I Been All My Life. Cheryl, welcome to Mind Talk. Thank you, Pamela. It's a pleasure to be with you. Cheryl, you begin your book talking about your experience of taking care of your mom um, during the last uh, months of her life. And you describe yourself as the self-appointed quarterback of her care team. Talk a little bit more about that. So my mom was diagnosed very abruptly with stage four lung cancer, and we were all taken aback. She had been an otherwise healthy, vibrant 67-year-old woman living the golden years of her life when we got the diagnosis. And as I'm sure many of your listeners know, when something like that happens, everything changes on a dime. And one of my commitments in that moment was to make sure that I was being as much of an advocate for her as I could throughout the healthcare system, as, as well as, of course, a very attentive daughter. And so my father, who was still very much alive and very much a part of this, was so devastated by this diagnosis himself. Um, I felt like I really needed to be the one to stand up and make sure we were getting all the information. I was taking notes, asking the tough questions of doctors so that my mom could focus on understanding what was happening to her and, and, of course, going through the treatment. So that's what I meant by being the quarterback, really just helping to take the lead on all the myriad of details that happen as soon as you're faced with a diagnosis like that. So it, it sounds like you were parenting both of your parents almost. Certainly. And, and you know, this is not unusual as parents age and, and children age. I was in my 40s at the time. So I felt it as a privilege, to be quite honest with you, Pamela. It was not a burden. It, it, there was no other role I would have wanted. I, I wanted to be there for them in any way I could. And certainly this was one way. And your mother ultimately passed. And what was that like for you in that moment? Well, in that moment, it was it was breathtaking. I thought I had been prepared for it. Um, we knew she was no longer responding to treatment. She had about four and a half months of treatment before we decided or we were told it wasn't working. And so then there were a few weeks in between the end of treatment and her death. And it was something that ultimately I could not have been prepared for. And we just did everything we could to keep her comfortable and to make sure everything that needed to be said was said and that she had a a peaceful passing and she was around, surrounded by those who loved her. But it was truly startling. I, I found myself at her bedside trying to keep pace with her breaths and her breath would become more labored. And I I had this moment where I I couldn't hold my breath and I I had to breathe on my own. And I think that was a sign of things to come that, that I could not breathe for her and nor she for me. And I had to, to stay alive. And so I was at her bedside and so was my father and my aunt. And I really believe she, she waited until my father who had been coming from a different location, she waited until he was there. And as soon as he came by, her bedside, he gave her a kiss, 
and she passed. That's an extraordinary, almost chilling visual um, to, to think about, both for you, for your dad, for your aunt, for, for your mom, I mean, for everybody who was there at that moment. Yes, it, it, it was incredibly powerful, and for anybody who's had that experience of being with anybody, even a, a pet at that moment of passing, it is a holy moment, an incredibly moving moment, and I felt so privileged to be there, Pamela. Of course, she was there. She brought me into this world, and so for me to accompany her on her journey out of it felt incredibly right, as difficult and painful as it was. It was a privilege. It was one of her last gifts to me was to be able to accompany her on this journey, and I feel very, very gifted by my experience. Um, as painful as, of course, it, it was and became in the grief. Just being with somebody as they make that final passage is a, a holy experience. A holy and humbling experience, to be sure. You talk about being there with your mom every day. What about your life outside of your mom's illness? Well, I had the privilege of having a schedule that I had a great deal of control of. I am a leadership coach and speaker, and while I had clients that I never um, let go during this time, I had some discretion in when I was able to see them. What was interesting is about three weeks before my mother's diagnosis, we did get a a brand-new puppy, and um, that was probably the hardest challenge was helping my puppy um, into the world of doggyhood and um, also being attentive to my mom. So I did, honestly, as many, many people know who are straddling child care and parent care, that's, that's a tough challenge. However, again, I'm no complaints. It was a labor of love, and I had support, and I had an understanding and supportive um, family around me, my, my husband in particular. So we made it work. That's what you do. Make it work when you're coming from a place of love and devotion. Absolutely. You describe yourself as, during your growing up years, as having been your mother's doll. Um, And you heard me quote you at the beginning of today's conversation, uh, quoting you having said that your journey towards your sense of yourself did not begin until, honestly, you were no longer in in the place to be able to care for your mom. But it sounds like during much of your childhood, caring for your mom was precisely what you did in one way or another. I think that's very astute and very fair, Pamela. I think I was the firstborn, first of two. My mother was 22 when she had me. She had come to this country from South Africa. She was raised in South Africa. So she had only been in this country 18 months. She had only been married six months, I believe, when I uh, she was pregnant with me. So she was in many ways uh, a child herself, deeply homesick for her family, her home country. Her parents were not in this country at the time. My father was working full-time and then some, trying to provide for his family. So I think she was incredibly bereft in many ways and used me, and I use that word thoughtfully. She did the best she could, as all parents do, 
and I think she she really needed me. And having me as her doll, she she called me puppet, which in Afrikaans means doll. And I think she clung to me for security, and I intuited that, and did all I can to be there for her, as as children do. They want to please their parents, and and they don't know any better. And so I think I just became exquisitely sensitive to her needs, and then later on, of course, my father's, and and that's just my path. Um, so you're absolutely right. Being a caretaker was not a, a novelty to me as an adult. It was something I feel in many ways I was groomed for. You said that you developed, uh, and now I'm quoting you uh, from Where Have I Been All My Life. You say, I developed an exquisite talent for moving away from my own feelings in order to survive, an accomplishment for which there was no reward. Yes, absolutely right. I, I think I was not taught or rewarded for being tuned into my feelings because if I had been tuned into my feelings and needs, that would have led to me wanting to advocate for them. And I don't believe I felt at that time in my life that those needs would have been met. And in fact, it felt actually quite the opposite, that my job was to make sure those around me, namely my parents, had their needs met. And and I had to do whatever kind of gymnastics necessary to make sure that I was aware of their feelings and then managing the environment in such a way that their needs could be met as much as a child can do that. But it was very clear to me that um, my experience was, well, not one that was valued. I know that might sound harsher than I mean it to. It's just that I got a lot of reward for being a caretaker of both my parents and for being very tuned into their emotional life and needs and frailties and trying to make up for them. And that's what led to a lot of the people-pleasing behaviors and the my appetite for craving really approval and not learning until much later the difference between approval and love. Cheryl, as you talk about the role, if you will, um, in which you were placed within your family, I'm wondering how much you know about your mom's life growing up and what her childhood was like. I know some, and I've tried to piece more together, actually, since her passing from her sister. I know in many ways it was very, very lovely childhood. I know they moved a lot. I know that income came and went, and her her father um, would have money and then not have money, and I think that did cause some stress. I also know she was, you know, raised during apartheid, and that had a profound effect on her and her sense of justice. Um, she was the youngest of two. So I don't know anything that would directly speak to some of the um, predispositions that perhaps um, immersed her in, in parenting um, the style that she had, in many ways, I think she would say she had a very good childhood in, in many ways. Um, I think contrary to this, my father, on the other hand, had 
a, a very impoverished childhood in every way, and I think that had as much, if not more, of an impact on my own sense of self and needing to make up for the childhood that he lacked. His childhood was one of overt abuse and, as I said, impoverishment and horror. And we knew little about it, but enough to know that it was devastating. And I felt very early on that it was my job to somehow make up for that. And it's very interesting because my mom, as I said, was an immigrant from South Africa. And even though my father grew up in this country, I I feel like he was an immigrant of sorts as well, never really having a home that had any degree of safety or consistency or, or love or nurturing. So that was something that was part of my inheritance that I, I kind of took up the mantle to try to repair, which is really just too big of a burden for a child. It's, so much of this happens, Pamela, um, unconsciously and without words. Nobody said it was my job to make up for his childhood, but I felt it. And I, I tried valiantly and much to my um, kind of not to my advantage, let's say, ultimately. You know, I was about to say that so often children do feel the the need to take care of their parents. And you're right, it's not. Well, in some instances, it is it is your job to take care of me. But but by and large, that is something that children experience. And it's often the parent's job to really notice what the child is doing and to disabuse the child of that notion. And that can that can be a challenge in and of itself. That's so true. And I think now what I, I've come to learn for myself and also even as a parent myself, how critical it is to help children to cultivate a sense of self for themselves, to actually tune into their own experience and to legitimize that for children and to teach them how to identify their feelings and that all feelings are valid and how to navigate and negotiate for one's needs and wants and desires and to really have a full range of experience, a healthy human condition that we all we all have. And I think now there seems to be more attention paid to that, even in movies such as, what was it, was it Inside Out that came out a few years ago that really was a beautiful film from Pixar that did an awesome job of giving giving people, not just children, a language for honoring all of the feelings that we have and how instrumental each one is in creating a whole. Inside Out was, you're right, a wonderful movie. I actually refer people to it very often because it was such a powerful uh, experience and so well done. Uh, yeah. One of the um, the things that is also true is if your parents, for, for whatever reason, didn't learn how to make all of that what is now almost natural wisdom for many available, uh, then it's hard to teach. And oh, that's it, so, that, and that's beautiful that you said that because I think that gets to compassion. And that's what I ultimately came to in my journey was having a real compassion for both my parents. And for a long time, I, I actually... I just defended them, and I, I felt like they were perfect parents and perfect people. And then after my mom passed, I came to 
to see my childhood in a different light because I, I was raised with privilege. I was an upper middle class child. I had my education paid for. We had vacation, summer camp. So in many ways, my life was incredibly blessed and rich and abundant. And it was only later that I started to realize some of my predispositions, the things that I was struggling with as an adult in my marriage, for instance, came from some of the, the challenges that I had as a child that, that, again, weren't visible on the outside, but emotionally were struggles I had. And once I came to see that my parents weren't human, I had to kind of work through my grief um, and then ultimately get to what you just highlighted so beautifully, which is compassion, that they were doing the best they could. They were young. They, again, didn't get per- parent excuse me, perfectly parented themselves. And of course, that's going to have an impact. And I think for all of us, no matter what our childhood is, we all have to come to reconcile our our youth and take responsibility ultimately if we want to be true adults, in my opinion. We need to make peace with what was. And compassion is a beautiful way to do that. But before the compassion, at least in my experience, Pamela, I had to first kind of feel and acknowledge the pain, some of the things that weren't so good. And that took me a while, and that was painful work for me, but I'm glad I did it. Absolutely. Cheryl, what is typical of teenage girls and boys, adolescent and teenage girls and boys, is the ability to develop a crush. And you have to tell us about the crush that you had on Kevin and what you would do as a result of that crush. So Kevin was a boy at summer camp. He was one of the maintenance staff at the all-girls summer camp I went to. And basically I just, I would just rush into the dining hall because I knew he was working to clear the dishes and I'd try to be the first to arrive to catch his attention. And then I would clear not just the plates from my table, but I would try to clear as many tables as I could just so I could run back and forth and grab his attention as he was cleaning the dishes. And it was really um, I thought I was being subtle, but I've learned in retrospect that I was nothing of the sort, and I probably totally humiliated myself. Um, but nonetheless, I was quite persistent, and um, we ultimately became friendly, but nothing more than that. I think he was more interested in some of the older girls than me. Ah, well, tell us about Mr. Eleven. Mr. Eleven was really the guy who had his locker next to mine in high school, and uh we, a friend of mine and I gave him the nickname Mr. Eleven because uh, we thought he was one hotter than a 10. And the whole school year, I was so paralyzed with uh, insecurity, I could barely talk to him. And his locker was right next to mine. So uh, I just would take vicarious pleasure in being close enough to actually, you know, get a whiff of him or, or kind of see what kind of classes he was taking from the books or what he brought for lunch. But honestly, Pamela, I did not have the uh, courage to to even dialogue with him, which is kind of sad, but true. It's kind of sad, but it is very often true, uh, particularly when someone is the object of your crush. And that's yeah. and it feels like it's a one-way crush. It's really hard to talk to that person. Yes, it is. And, you know, the idea of anything being reciprocal was just beyond me. I mean, I, I truly felt um, that my crushes were just, even the ones that were human, you know, like in the flesh, not just movie stars or or singers, that they just would never in a million years take an interest in me. So I think that I knew the crushes weren't attainable, which is one of the reasons why I don't think I actually advocated for myself. I had no belief that any of these people would actually be interested in me. It was a true 
truly based on longing. And I came to feel very comfortable. As painful as the longing could be, it became a habit for me. It became a way of giving myself some sustenance through this fantasy life. But ultimately, as as I'm sure you can appreciate, it's, it's not ultimately fulfilling. But I didn't think I was worthy of actually receiving some boy's attention, so I didn't even go for it. And that's kind of sad to look back on, but it's true. You talk about the fact that for you, being loved was a matter of how much work you could accomplish in the service of that love. Exactly. I was a really classic people pleaser, somebody who kind of habitually behaved in ways that I thought would please others and would would get me love. But all it got me was approval, and it becomes like a hamster wheel of needing to continue to perfect, to please, to perform, to get this really, um, what I see now as a substitute for real love, as is just approval. And so that became a habit I developed as a child and continued into my adult years and, and brought that even into my marriage. I married a man with two beautiful children, and for the first year and a half, perhaps, I think I was just still working to people, please. I, I was doing more chores around the house than any of than the other three people in my house combined. I felt like at any moment I could kind of get voted off the island of my family if I weren't constantly pleasing. And that's not a good place to parent. It's not a good place to be in a marriage from, that place of diminishment um, and inferiority and, frankly, fear. You know, there's a sense if I'm not, quote, unquote, enough, that I'll lose these important people to me. And when a relationship's not based on two equals, we're going to have problems. And eventually resentment, for example, is, is one of them. You you talk about your pattern of dating men who were unavailable. And so, of course, if you're dating somebody who's unavailable, you could work your fingers to the bone, literally, and that person's still going to be unavailable, not because of any work you do or don't do, but just because of their lack of emotional connectedness. What was that like for you as an adult? You talk about having had uh, affairs with men who just weren't available to you. That's right. That was incredibly painful, incredibly painful. And it was through my work that I began to realize how much I was contributing to this dynamic. So I would lament the fact that there were no, quote, unquote, good men, while I would be choosing men who didn't have the goods and not taking responsibility for that or believing that I could reform them or rehabilitate them or be enough so that they would become available. And it was a dance and it was a delusion and it was so unconstructive and painful and I'm not proud of some of the choices I made. I regret completely. And they came from a real place of unworthiness and unwholesomeness within me. And I was grasping. that The painful truth of it, Pamela, was I didn't believe I was worthy of receiving. So I, I seemed to attract unavailable men who would take and take and take because I didn't believe that the ones who were available, that I could receive when they did show up with attentiveness. I played these games on all my dates where I would make sure that I I would ask them questions and not let them get a word in edgewise in terms of about me. 
you know, and I would set them up basically. And then I would say, well, he's not interested in me. He can only think about himself. Meanwhile, I just created a scenario where all I did was pepper him with questions about himself. And it was very unflattering, but I'm being really honest, which I am throughout the book, because I think it's important because I know I'm not alone. I know a lot of women do things to distance themselves from the intimacy they say they seek. And so my attracting unavailable men into my life was my issue. about voice your vision what is that your voice your vision is my business so I help women be leaders in their own lives and I do that through coaching leaders in corporations and coaching people privately who are up to something big and juicy in their life and they want help they're making a transition whether it be personal or or professional I have a background in applied positive psychology so I use a lot of the methods and um, tools from positive psychology to help people flourish and I also speak to women. I have a seminar from inner critic to inner champion, and that really helps women turn down the volume on their inner critic, which you know I know a lot about, and helps them develop a relationship with their inner champion, which is an abiding voice of wisdom that I believe all women, all women have inside of them, but they just don't necessarily know it. So that's really my passion now, Pamela, is helping women to discover their voice, claim their voice in service of their vision for their lives. And that's my, my business. And you have a website for that business. I do. It's yourvoiceyourvision.com. All one word, yourvoiceyourvision.com. It's so kind of you to ask. Tell us about your You Matter project. What's that? Oh, thanks for asking, Pamela. This is a hoot. This is You Matter Marathon. No running required before we lose all your listeners. This is really a race of the heartstrings where I invite people to give out one card that only has the words you matter on it a day during the month of November. And last year we gave out almost half a million cards. This year we're on track for a million cards. And I mail 30 You Matter cards for free to the first about 3,000 people who sign up at youmattermarathon.com. And we have a Facebook page as well. And, Pamela, this has been one of the best gifts of my life to give this to the world because, as you know, this quest for mattering matters. And so many people don't feel that they matter, as I questioned in my life. And so now I help women professionally honor that they do matter. But what I found is that in telling somebody else that they matter, we enhance our own sense of significance. So giving out these You Matter cards has become an incredible happy habit of mine, and inviting other people to join me in it has really been life-changing. I mean, just, again, go to the Facebook page or the website, and you'll see story after story of people's experiences giving out these simple cards with a a profound impact, and that's youmattermarathon.com. From somebody who participated last year, an adult woman whose adult son she was estranged from, he had his own set of problems and was actually just released from jail, 
and she was trying to reestablish a relationship with him. He was in a halfway house, and they met, and she said the first thing she did was give him a You Matter card, and he started to cry, and this had been their first connection in years. And she said she really felt that it was a gateway to reestablishing a relationship with him, and he, in fact, asked her for cards that he could give to people living in this halfway house. And I thought to myself, and she wrote a beautiful letter, much more eloquent than I'm describing it, and I thought to myself, if this was the only reason we did the You Matter Marathon last year, it would have been worth it. And we have story after story, and it's all over the world. We have pharmacists in New Zealand putting these cards, You Matter cards, into the prescriptions that they fill for people for the spouses of people who are in hospice, Pamela. So when these spouses come to pick up their prescription for their loved one, they get a You Matter card. And we know that caregivers are sometimes undervalued in this country. And so that's what's happening in New Zealand. We have school districts participating. It just goes on and on and on. The power of just even one card share is really incalculable. The website is Your Voice, Your Vision is my professional website. Um, and then youmattermarathon.com. If someone just wants to send me an email, my email is Cheryl Rice, one word, Cheryl Rice at Comcast.net. But I'm accessible on both those websites, Pamela. Terrific. Thank you, Cheryl, so much for the work that you are doing and for sharing time with us today. Pamela, it's truly been a privilege. You matter. <laughs> Thank you. And folks, thank you for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk comes to you daily as an educational public service and is not intended to replace any work that you might choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. And you can download Mind Talk at the Mind Talk programs at mindtalk.org, M Y N D T A L K. .org, or you can download the MindTalk app from the iTunes or Google Play stores. And remember always, if it's unacceptable, then that is what it is. You take care.